Okay, 2 Corinthians 2. The whole second book of Corinthians is an apostle defending his apostleship constantly. That's what this whole, the whole second book. Because here, here he was, and you'll see all kinds of portions. Here he was. He got, Christ had used him to establish local assemblies and to teach them and to raise them up. And then those very ones that he did would begin to deny or find fault in him. Because after all, I mean, the guy was human. <laughs> but he was natural in the sense of his humanity, but he had a supernatural message. In Christianity, there's nothing natural about it. It's all supernatural. So he was constantly dealing with these things all the time. So here he's dealing in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. He was dealing with the Corinthian church because they, they weren't operating in, an, in, a, in a balance. They weren't balanced because first, and this is referring to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, when we get into the second chapter. Of course, there was a son. A father had married another woman. The woman was his stepmom. But then he began having relations with her. Right in the church, right in the local assembly, he was allowed to just be there. And Paul had, you know, Paul had to come in and tell him, listen, you know, this is going to affect you know, the whole ministry because God will not put up with this. And so you need to deal with it. So they dealt with it. First they put up with it. It wasn't even a matter for them to even consider. And then when he taught them and they considered it, then they wouldn't forgive the guy yeah. at all. So they went from one part of the balance to the other. It's like the seesaw with nobody on the one end, you know, goes up, you know, and then you have to get on the other side. And, go, and there's no there was no balance to them. So then he says this. He says in, in the ninth verse, "To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For for if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ." Okay. So what he's saying is, listen. The same Christ in you who will tell you lovingly to give loving discipline in a local assembly how it should be. Still in love, and it's love that disciplines too, by the way. It is always a love that disciplines to, to correct us. It's all it's doing is, is to bring in correction. So in other words, in Hebrews 12, 4 to 11, and in Pro Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, God disciplines every single son that he receives, lovingly corrects them with the truth. So God will give teaching. The Holy Spirit will take the things of Christ and he'll give teaching to teach us things that are ours so we can function in them or things to prevent us from doing things that we shouldn't do or should do or to correct us if we're doing them and we shouldn't. And that's the teaching there. So, but to forgive simply means this. I mean, I have, I have in me Christ who's forgiven them. 
And the same Christ that would say to them, you, you lovingly discipline this man for his sake and also for the sake of the local assembly. But now, okay, now the guy's totally repented. I mean, and you still won't let him back into fellowship? Well, the same one now says, you need to forgive, you need to forgive this one. Forgive him. And you do it. And the only way you can do it is in the person of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, really in the sight of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. What's the biggest advantage that he gets in local assemblies today in Christianity one, one person, one believer gets offended with the other, and then there's no forgiveness. I just won't forgive you. I'll receive forgiveness for myself and my own sins. Maybe that they're pretty hideous, but nobody knows about them, but God certainly has forgiven me. But someone will offend me, and I won't forgive them. Well, Satan would get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. These are, these are satanic devices. So Paul is dealing with all of these things. If you want to see what the guy went through, read the book of Acts. Oh, God. Portions of it. I mean, this guy really went through it, but God was using it all to prepare him, obviously, and to keep him always at the end of himself so that his preaching in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 would not be of himself. We, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord. He said, not even my style, my delivery has nothing, nothing to do with me. It is literally all him. Because in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but it's of God. And it's the Holy Spirit, because the letter kills. That's the flesh trying to appropriate truth by itself, using legalism to try and do it. The letter kills, but what happens? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives life. In other words, imparts the very life of Christ who we are, in Him and who He is in us. So, that's going on. So he's constantly dealing with his own struggles, his own things. And by the way, he didn't do it all the time, but when it was necessary, in Acts 18, verse 3, he had to make tents. He did get support, but at times when he didn't have it, uh, he had to do, he had to uh, work with his hands, so he had to do that. He had the weight of all the churches on him. All of that was on him. And then he has to deal with these issues. He had to deal with them. And then we see in the 12th verse, 2 Corinthians 2, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and I like that. His gospel, and we've said before, is where we get God's spell. You can't spell out God. There can be no news that's good news about God outside of Jesus Christ. It is His gospel to preach Christ's gospel. And a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Okay? The door was opened. The door was opened to preach and to teach. There were people there. And, he, and it gave him an open door. 
to preach and to teach. But look at verse 13. Here's an apostle. Third heaven. Imagine being in the third heaven and having to come back into the flesh and deal with struggles and everything else. Hearing things that wasn't, he had, he just couldn't say. Probably because it, it might be beyond human language. Even if it wasn't, people would not be ready for it unless they were there in heaven to receive it. <laughs> oh, boy. And of course, he had to be given a thorn in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So he wouldn't exalt himself because of what God had given him. But he said, I had no rest in my spirit. What? Apostle? You gotta be kidding me. He's an apostle and he's getting yeah, he's getting weary. I found no rest in my spirit. Why? Because I found not Titus, my brother. Let me tell you. Probably the closest man to me in, in my life personally is Mike Fenton, with what God's done with him and I. And we have that type of a relationship. And Paul, he said, found no rest in his spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. I mean, he was in, he was in need, and he was depressed, by the way. <laughs> he was depressed. Boy, what that can do to your energy level when you have to function and do certain things can be very, very intense. But taking my leave of them, I went from there into Macedonia. And he's, now he's going to speak by faith. Because his feelings were not backing him up at all. It was the opposite. He said, but now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. So God has to teach him again, like he has to teach all of us, like he has to teach me, that when no one's there, I might have them not there so that you have to depend on me and not go anywhere else. But he always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. I mean, God can manifest the savor of his knowledge through me and through all of us too, by the way. Because we're all given the same thing, because it's all ours. It's not any more mine than it is yours. It's just the way it is. That's the truth of the matter. But we could be struggling and going through things and maybe depressed at times, but God will still have us, have his knowledge flow through us. And we can know by faith, apart from feelings, that, that we're, we're, there is triumph in Christ. And maybe my feelings aren't backing it up right now, but I know by faith that he is my triumph. He, I am more than a conqueror in Romans 8.37. Maybe led his sheep to the slaughter in 8.36. <laughs> Psalm 44, verse 22. Maybe led as a sheep to the slaughter, yes. But I know that he always causes me to triumph. He always causes me to live in him who's conquered everything. It may take time. I may have to pass through and come to the end of myself. Self-help and self-hopelessness in anyone or anything. But he will cause us 
uh, to triumph, and then he will manifest that. So he has us in a trial where we have to utterly depend upon him, coming to the end of ourself. Then he fills us with this unbelievable, triumphant manifestation of who he is in us and who we are in him. Fills us with that so that we get the benefit of it and anyone else that comes in contact with us. Because it's in every place. When it becomes ours, in experience, it can, it can be manifested, and it will be manifested in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. Think about that. We are. No matter what people think. No matter what they think of us. The one that's most important is God, and we are a sweet savor. It's like the incense in, in the sacrifices in Leviticus. The incense would go up to God, and he would be so pleased. And it's the incense of Christ in us. Him being glorified in and through us, Colossians 1.27, and then us being blessed by it and manifesting that, that uh, the savor, the beautiful aroma of the knowledge of Christ by us in every place. We become in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, these written epistles. Okay, because we're unto God now, a sweet savor of Christ. In them that are saved believers in them that are saved and in them that perish it's the same it's the same to the one we are a savor of death unto death <laughs> and to the other the savor of life unto life and who is sufficient for these things who of us could ever be sufficient if any of this other than Christ in us couldn't be any other way. So Paul here, this is all faith. No feelings are backing him up. None. Some people didn't feel like coming here tonight. But we came. You know what that is? That's called faith. Because faith doesn't mean, and faith doesn't need my feelings to back it up. It doesn't. Faith means that even if I don't feel like it, I do it anyway. That's a faith in Hebrews 11.6 that pleases God. Hebrews 11.6, uh, without faith, it is impossible to please him. But we've always said with faith, it's impossible not to please him. So faith has to have an object that's outside of ourselves, that, that has to have an object to rest in, and that is Jesus Christ. We totally depend upon him. We said this morning in John 15, verse 1, he's the true vine. He's the true one. No other true vine other than him from where the life flows, and that life is the light of men in John 1, 3, and 4. So, who's sufficient for these things? It has to be Christ in him. And then he said this in verse 17, For we are, for we are not as many which corrupt. And that word corrupt means deal deceitfully. We are not those that deal deceitfully the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, it says. And of means constituted of the exact same substance. In other words, it's God. Borrowing his humanity as a vessel, pouring out his word, pouring it out. In the sight of God, it says, speak we 
and it's a lot of translations in, speak we of Christ. Who are we to speak of? Oh, ourselves? Oh, God. God forbid. We had to speak of Christ. In the sight of God, who does he want to hear spoken of? <laughs> His son. His son. We were going to share it tonight. We will share it again at a different time. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. They're not shallow. They're not on the surface. They need to be dug in, dug after, searched, a diligent search. That's what a pastor does. He does. He Tired or not, by the way, tired, dead tired or not, he's to, to, to bring about a diligent search and to dig like he's digging for gold. Yeah, it's nice to have this. It's nice to wear it. But what did it take for people to get it? Did it just jump out? You think things can just jump out of Christ? Nope. There is, there's, and thank God for it, and it's all of God, but there's a labor involved. There's a depth involved. So that's what we speak. But then we see, here he is, and he's speaking all of that so far. Is his feelings backing him up? Nope. Nope. By the way, in Philippians 4.11... The apostle, remember now, when he said it in Philippians 4.11, those are called the prison epistles. He's chained to a guard. I have learned. I have learned. I have learned to be content. And whatsoever state I'm in, the condition that I'm in. In other words, my condition is not my authority or doesn't, have, is, doesn't sway mastery over me. It's Christ. Because if it is me, then the condition becomes my master. The situation, the circumstance becomes the authority over me. But that's what he said. So he said in 2 Corinthians 7, ding, ding. 2 Corinthians 7 says this, and this is what Paul was saying. And, and again, <laughs> look at verse 4. When you read this, just let me give you a little background. Great is my boldness toward you. Great is my glorify, glorifying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Do you think his feelings were backing him up? I don't think so. Now watch what he says. For when we were come into Macedonia, remember in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, he, he left. He had to leave, because and he couldn't. He was waiting for Titus the whole time. Please, I need, I need to be built up. I'm going through it. I need to be built up. I need someone. Hello. Didn't come. He didn't come. So then he had to, apart from his feelings, completely rely and depend upon Jesus Christ. So he, so he came into Macedonia. He said, our flesh had no rest. Listen, this is an apostle, remember. Okay? He's written 14 epistles. We wouldn't, if Christ hadn't given to him these epistles, we'd never know who we were in Christ. Ever. <laughs> and he gave them to this guy. And he says, in my flesh, in my physical body, I had no rest. 
but we were troubled on every side. Do you ever feel that way? Have you ever felt like you're troubled on every side? Oh, trouble at work, trouble here, trouble there. I talked to my dear friend. It's like, gee, I can't say anything to anybody. I mean, because, you know, I, I said, listen, when you, listen, you, <laughs> Satan can't destroy the message. He can't. Because the message is Christ. That's the message, is Christ, by the way. And Christ has literally defeated him. But for that message to come out and come to us as ours is going to be fought by Satan. So I just simply said, listen, even people's struggles. And boy, I felt a few of those over the years as, as a pastor. When they come against you, really, it's that they're even struggling, not knowingly, many times, even against God, who's trying to correct them. So it comes at you because you're the vessel. So everything comes at you. In even a much greater, greater way, I am in no way comparing myself to the Apostle Paul, okay? So it's night and day, okay? But in type, in part, he said, in my little part, he said this, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side without were fightings all around him he was being fought by the atmosphere against him personally by the atmosphere raising a people to come against him and all around him there's this fightings Satan fighting him with his lies and his accusations remember in Revelation 12 verse 10 he always accuses the brethren can you imagine how Satan would try to accuse the Apostle Paul? Huh, you think you're an apostle. Oh, really? You met Christ and oh, you're going to preach. Yeah, you're preaching to the church. Do you, you remember what you did to them? You were massacring them. You were slaughtering them. How much? How? Because he would even say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he said, I am not meet, not even qualified to be called an apostle, special messenger of Jesus Christ. That is an apostle, by the way. And there were certain requirements to be an apostle. That's why there's no apostles today. None. He says, I am not me. I'm not qualified to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But, in verse 10, I am what I am by the grace of God had nothing to do with himself. Oh, God. By the grace of God. And I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I. But the grace of God that was with me. Aha. That's who does, that's who does it all. That's who does it all. So he was troubled on every side. Without were fightings all around him. And guess what was in with him? Within him. An apostle? Fears? Really? Yeah. Why? Well, he's human. Not, and we don't want to make excuses for that. We just want to function in truth. That's all. But there were fears. And he had to deal with all of these things. Now watch what happened. Nevertheless, 
God, now here's, here's this depression, let me tell you. Nevertheless, God that comforts those that are cast down. He's talking about himself. I am depressed. I'm discouraged. I am down. I'm an apostle. I've preached everywhere, but I'm down. Why? Fighting's all around me. You think that might wear you out sometimes? The mental struggle, the mental battle. Uh -huh. Within were fears. Do we all have to deal with them continually and growing and knowing who we are? Yeah. Was it any different for an apostle? Think it might have been maybe a little bit more? <laughs> Just maybe. Nevertheless, God that comforts those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. I'm going to see Mike soon. I, I, I have to. <laughs> I really believe it's of God. I do. I don't know exactly when, though, but I know that I'm going to do it. And not by his coming only. Listen to what it says. Not by his coming only. Do you think an apostle needs, needed to get built up? Not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. Watch what it says. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me. <sighs> wow. You think it's important that we communicate to each other and edify one another and build each other up? Mm -hmm. So that I rejoiced the more. It lifted him right up out of his depression. That's what happened to him, and he was an apostle. Pretty interesting. Well, for though I made you sorry with a letter, his epistle, I do not repent. I don't change my mind. Though I did change my mind, for I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. I'm sorry you had to be sorry, even for the season. I'm sorry you had to be sorry, but guess what? Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. You changed your mind about certain things. That's why we have teaching. That's why we have the preaching and teaching of the word. God, we do an about face in our thinking on things. That you sorrow to repentance. For you were made sorry, and this is the best way to do it, after a godly manner. According to God. In other words, your sorrow was caused according to God. And to have sorrow according to God simply means that when you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. He's not making you sorry to be condemned. He's causing us to be sorry for this reason. That you might receive damage by us and nothing. Look at verse 10. Here's the reason. For godly sorrow works a change of mind. Listen, it has to be God. That's why the psalmist said, Psalm 25, 16, Psalm 80, verse 3, Psalm 85, verse 4. Lord, turn me. Turn me. I know my thinking's not right, but I just can't get there. Why? Because you have to turn me, God. Your grace and your mercy and your love, it has to turn me. You have to turn me to you. 
And that's what God's doing with this preaching and teaching. He's turning us away from anything else that's not of him. And he's turning us to face Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's turning us. Because a godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. And salvation means not just the day we were saved, but a continual deliverance from that that would cause us to be sorry in a condemning and wrong way. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Repentance to a salvation, to a deliverance not to be repented of. In other words, never to be regretted. That's what the Greek says. You will never regret the godly sorrow that comes from my teaching. Because the sorrow, according to God, works in us a repentance, a turn of mind for us to face the one who has delivered us. And he wants to continue to deliver us. That's why when we know the truth, experience it, the truth will set us free. From what? A sorrow that's not from God. This is a sorrow from God that we never have to regret. Because that sorrow will lead us to where we find the most incredible joy and happiness in who Christ is and what he's accomplished in us and us in him. See? So, for godly sorrow works or causes a change of mind for deliverance never to be regretted. That's the Greek. But the sorrow of the world works death. And boy, that's to be regretted. When you mix in certain teaching... Like we were in Colossians, the second chapter. You know, you mix in all this Oriental philosophy, this Eastern, you see it today everywhere, this Eastern, New Age, crapola, and that's a Greek word, crapola, or crapomai, or kakomai, whatever. Pick one. <laughs> that gets into it. And then you take, you take that, then you take cold, dead, Judaism, legalism, infuse it into one thing and then mix it into Christianity. And that becomes your teaching. Oof. That's to be very regretted. Very, 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 very regretted. And it's a, quite a thing to understand. But we never have to regret the right teaching because the right teaching will cause us to be sorrowful in a way that we will never regret. There's no regretting it when we have that. And so, what a thing it is. <laughs> it's the sorrow according to God does work this change of mind and that life that comes with, with what's ours. And remember, he's, he, he's not changing us, okay? He's transforming us into who we are in Christ. He doesn't take the old and make something new out of it. He did away with the old in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, and all things are new in 17. All things are new in him. So we don't regret anything when we function in him. Or we don't have to regret that we're on the path that's going to lead us to experience a sorrow that we won't ever regret. We don't ever have to regret it. This change of mind, the sorrow according to God. Why? Because it's unto a deliverance. 
It's a sorrow that leads us to, to the full deliverance that's ours in Christ. And when you get there, that's never to be regretted. See, that's what he's teaching here. That's what it's saying. And so it agrees with us. But the sorrow of the world, what? The sorrow of the world does what? It brings in the kind of sorrow that has grief for failure and not for sin. Right? Esau, he cried his tears. But was it for his sin or the consequences of his sin? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Listen. And we'll close with this. For grief, according to God, works repentance to salvation, never to be regretted. But the grief of the world works death. And death, remember what death is, and its basic meaning, it means separation. So this regret, this sorrow from the world, is what Satan tries to work into the believer, into their life, to separate them, to cause a separation, never in opposition. Can't, he can't touch that. But in our experience of Christ who was our life, of Christ who's more than a conqueror, that's what, so he tries to come in, in a way, uh, between us and that life that's ours. So, Lord, we thank you for the truth. We thank you that uh, you always have a way back for us. And that's Christ, because he's in us. He's, he goes before us, he goes with us, and he's waiting for us at the end. In Jesus' name, amen.